Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey, Matt. Hi. <laughs> this is the <laughs> this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Boy, do we need it! I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with co-hosts Dr. Paul Williams and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Hey, Matt. I I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. You uh, pulled my leg. <laughs> yes. You're welcome, as always. This episode, the idea for this episode uh, was to go over some of the gray areas that come up when managing severe hyperglycemia or DKA. We also talk about some of the uh, pitfalls of the new SGLT2 inhibitors. And our guest on this episode is a repeat guest, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. Dr. Colburn is dual boarded in endocrinology and internal medicine. He's currently working for a large academic center in San Antonio, where he's won yearly awards as a favorite educator. He has actually collaborated for his current institution, where he helped write the the DKA and HHS protocol for the ICU. He is a lead author on the 2016 VA and DOD guidelines for the management of diabetes. Of diabetes, diabetes. <laughs> I like diabetes. <laughs> We're changing the name to diabetes. Um, that's just unfortunate. Yeah, maybe that's too dark. No, okay. I don't like that. Uh, and he has also helped develop the ACE algorithm for type 2 diabetes, which is an app that gets plugged quite a bit on this show, as you'll hear. Uh, Dr. Colburn <laughs> is an all-around fantastic speaker, educator, and clinician, and I know our listeners are going to gain a lot of value and insight from this conversation. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Colburn. It's a sweet one. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Matt Watto here with co-host Stuart Brigham and Paul Williams. How you doing? Hey, Matt. Gentlemen, we have with us tonight Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, you got it. Thanks for the invite. We, we are definitely in need of your services tonight. We have lots of questions about hyperglycemia and DKA. But uh, before we get into that, uh, we do just want to ask you some softball questions uh, <laughs> in a rapid-fire manner. Does he play softball? Lab him up. I think Jeff's a big softball guy. Is that right, Jeff? Uh, a little bit. I, uh, baseball, I guess I would say, but um, sure. Okay. No, there you go. You got the answer to your first <laughs> question. A rousing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have to agree with me. I was just throwing it out there. <laughs> I'll agree with anything you say, Watto. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what what hobby or activity outside of medicine do you uh, use to promote wellness? Um, I I like to run, uh, so it's probably my biggest activity. Put the music on, just kind of chug away. Rock climbing is another big passion, but being outside is uh, de-stressing, centering. You know, just good to be healthy. And uh, I think you actually do that on a regular basis, right? Not just uh, like Doctor Williams, who says he runs and. Uh... <laughs> He's trying. He stares wistfully out the window. <laughs> oh, I, I try. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I, I probably go through sneakers at a, a blazing rate. I'm sure my, my wife is like, you know, why are you buying more sneakers? Uh, it's been like two months. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I like to keep running shoes for like 10 years. I think my current pair is nine years old. That's insane. Oh, God. <laughs> no injuries. It sounds so. like a brag, but it should have been. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially <laughs> considering your runtime. They smell great. Mm. Um, <laughs> Okay. Jeff, uh, can you recommend uh, one great book that's helped you in your career or just in general? Oh, to get really philosophical on you, I guess, uh, going back to the outdoorsy person, I I'm a big um, 
Henry David Thoreau Walden fan. I would recommend if you've never picked it up and read it to do it sometime in life. And I'm not saying you have to live in the woods. I'm just saying being your own person and looking at life in a broader way um, is important. That's a good one. I, I have to admit, I think I read like 30 pages and uh, I was like, oh, I'll try this again another time. <laughs> it can be a snooze fest, but you got to give it a chance. Okay, Jeff, uh, what is a medical app that you would recommend? Something like an Hippocrates. Well, you know, just kind of relating to today's topic, I like the ACE algorithm. So the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, um, it's an endocrinology group that puts out um, uh, very nice, I'd say, aesthetically pleasing and simple guidelines. Um, and they published a good one for diabetes care in general. Um, that's one I would recommend uh, folks download. And it has great insulin and just diabetes drug algorithms um, that can assist you in shared decision making. It really helps with showing the patient um, you know, your side of what's out there for information. And yeah, and Jeff, you're being, you're being humble, but you actually did, you were integral in developing that app. And yeah, I guess that would be a conflict of interest, but I have to say, I'd say it's a, it's a good app and um, it's a good organization. We definitely think it's a good app. I think it's a great teaching tool, whether you're in clinic with like a resident and teaching them or medical student, or if you're just kind of showing the patients how you're coming about your decisions and uh, visually, like the user interface and everything is very is very nice. Uh, Stuart's like, Stuart, you have something to say, I can tell. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, <laughs> just make sure that you deposit that $5 into Matt's bank account at the end of this uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah. I will do. <laughs> uh, okay. So download the ACE app uh, algorithm for type 2 diabetes. Okay, Jeff. And what is some great advice that you have received in your career or recently uh, in recent memory? You know, I've got a, um, a really good mentor uh, who, you know, I think we go through a lot of things and are trying to figure out, you know, how do I eliminate stress? You know, stress is always going to be there. Um, we just have to find ways to, to recover from it. Um, but his advice is perpetually to me um, to be patient, to be persistent, um, and that everything's a learning opportunity. And so when I, when I think about my work life and my home life with that perspective and try and maintain it, it's hard to do. Um, I, I just feel a little bit more, um, I guess, at peace. Um, stress occurs. I can't eliminate it. Um, the only way you can eliminate stress is to be dead. Don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say just trying to find ways to uh, recover from it. And I think what I would point out to the listeners there is that you mentioned you have a mentor who you're going to regularly checking in. And Jeff, you're you're someone who's doing some what I think is some pretty cool stuff in your career at an early stage. And I think a lot of that is because you've been really good about seeking out mentors and getting that extra guidance. And uh, I would encourage all our listeners to try to do the same. Certainly something that I'm doing. Yeah, highly recommend. I'd say if you're not already touching base with people that are further up and uh, along in their career, um, that's probably a number one thing to start doing because it gives you a lot more of um, insight on how to get to those places and they've got more experience. And Absolutely. In interest of time, we will move on to the hyperglycemia and DKA questions. We, um, the, the idea behind this talk, as I said in the intro, is kind of to go over cases of severe hyperglycemia, kind of classifying them. Is this, is this truly DKA? Is this HHS? Is this something else? And how to tackle it. Uh, so the first question, just to start off, let's pretend uh, you're talking to someone that doesn't really know much about diabetes at all. What would you be like your Wikipedia style summary? So, you know, to start up the discussion, we need to think about, you know, what is diabetes? 
Um, and one of the stumbling blocks I see for people is this distinction between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, which is really important to the discussion we're going to have. Type 1 diabetes, we're typically thinking about younger adults, but type 1 diabetes can occur at any age in your life. It's an autoimmune destruction of the cells in your pancreas, the beta cells that make insulin. And without the ability to make insulin, you're going to have absolute insulin deficiency. There's no insulin in your body. Um, untreated, that's obviously a fatal state to be in. You'll become progressively hyperglycemic and uh, die of that condition. Um, and until advent of insulin in 1921, uh, that's exactly what happened. So type 1 diabetes, though, you know, I think we're kind of thinking, oh, that's always a young person, adolescent, leave that to peds. Um, type 1 diabetics now can live, you know, full lives, and it can actually occur at any age. So the differentiating factor there being typically type 1s are going to be more of a lean body type person. Certainly there are people that break these rules, but more of a lean body type person and have lipid profiles that look more normal or, or decent lipids. You're not seeing severe dyslipidemia in these patients typically. And so type 1 diabetes patients versus type 2. Type 2, we're thinking about uh, obese patients that over periods of t long periods of time, their obesity is causing resistance to insulin. So their muscles, their, their peripheral tissues don't listen to that signal. Over time, they will have death of the pancreatic cells that make insulin because fat is toxic to the cells that make insulin. So fat deposition in those organs over time can destroy your ability to make insulin, and they may actually become insulin deficient completely as well, further down, usually 15 to 20 years into their disease process. But that's really important to establish to begin this discussion because DKA is a process that, that more typically happens in type 1 diabetes um, and less so in type 2 diabetes, although it can happen in both. I wanted to key in on what type of patient with type 2 diabetes is at risk for DKA? So the type 2 diabetic that could go into DK would be somebody that has a severe acute rapid change in their glucose, usually somebody that has um, uh, overwhelming infection, uh, sepsis, uh, maybe a, an, a stroke or myocardial infarction, um, and that rapid shift in the glucose can lead to the diabetic ketoacidosis. So if you think about the basic pathophysiology of the way our body's using fuels, is that our main fuel source is going to be glucose. We, our body, we consume lots of foods, um, but typically the main food uh, product that we're trying to get into our serum, into our blood, is glucose. Our brain is a glucose-dependent organ. It can only use glucose. It can't use amino acids um, for fuel source purposes. It can't use fats. It can't use um, those other things. So um, glucose is where it's at. Now, when we're operating normally, you and I have insulin. That's the key to get glucose from your blood into cells. And so that's working great in, in normal individuals. Um, in patients and people that have insulin lack, they can't get the glucose into their cells. And so what's happening is the glucose is building up and building up in the bloodstream. You check a, a blood sugar and the blood sugar is very high. But the inside cells, the inside environment of their brain cells and other cells of their body are actually starving for glucose. They can't get glucose. So the body starts firing off systems and signals to try and get another fuel source. So it says, well, I can't get any glucose in my cells. I'm basically starving here. I need another fuel source. So it flips kind of like you might flip your car into a different gear 
it flips into free fatty acid metabolism. And so it starts breaking down free fatty acids to try and use that as a source of fuel. And when you break down free fatty acids, you're going to make keto acids as a byproduct, which are going to be your uh, acetoacetone, uh, acetone, and your beta-hydroxybutyrate. And those acidify the blood. And that really, in a basic sense, is what's happening in DKA. We don't have any insulin. We can't get sugars into cells like our brain cells. So the inside environment of the cells are starving for sugar. And you have these counter-regulatory systems that are turning on, including cortisol, epinephrine, growth hormone, and glucagon. And those counter-regulatory hormones say, hey, well, we can't use glucose. Why don't we go ahead and just try and use free fatty acids? And that's where the problems come. So briefly, then understanding that, why is it then that that many type 2 diabetes patients, uh, those who have severe hyperglycemia who present the ER to the UCC, the urgent care center, when they present, they're automatically being labeled as having DK when they don't seem to have some of these stigmata that you're discussing. Yeah. So if you have even just a little bit of insulin in your system, that's going to prevent these counter-regulatory systems from being able to put you in DKA. So you're not going to, it's kind of like, I like to talk with my students and, and uh, patients and residents about the gear shifter in a car, normally the normal gear is glucose gear. And the only thing that's going to shift you over into free fatty acid gear is total lack of insulin. As long as you have a little bit of insulin around, even if your sugar is very, very high, um, you can still stay away from DKA if you've got a little bit of insulin on board. And that's also very important to understand um, for our type 1 diabetes patients. Um, a lot of them will go into DKA because they just forget, neglect, or stop taking insulin products and have absolute insulin deficiency, they go into DKA. So to answer your question, just again, it's in summary, if you have a little bit of insulin around, it's going to keep you still in that gear of glucose use, even if you have a little bit around of insulin. Now, the, the patient with type 2 diabetes that, that will develop this, uh, will develop DKA. Is this someone who's older? Maybe the pancreas is just burned out. The beta, the beta cells are no longer making any insulin and then they get an infection or the beta cells are making barely anything. Then they get an infection and that shifts them over. I think you said it all perfectly right there. It's usually a person who's later in their diabetes with lots of comorbidities. Their type two diabetes has progressed to the point where maybe they're on insulin products because not only are they insulin uh, resistant, but they're not making much insulin anymore. Their beta cells have pooped out, so to speak. Um, so you said that perfectly. And then also, there's usually some kind of quick inciting acute factor, like an infection that you mentioned. So absolutely, older patient, had diabetes, type 2 diabetes a long time, and then gets sick with something like a urinary tract infection is the most common. And Dr. Colburn, is that is the... The, the infection or the physiologic stress that sort of tips you over into DKA with type 2 diabetes, is that because of the increase in cortisol, so the increase in counter-regulatory hormones? Or? That's probably part of it. Some of it is also just being sick can increase resistance. So if they're, let's say they are appropriately taking their insulin, they're going to be, they can be acutely much more resistant to that insulin because of the inflammation of that oh, infection. But um, also infections can make you dehydrated. The cardinal, if we're going to say, and this kind of speaks to treatment a little bit, but the the cardinal issue with DKA and even HHS, um, the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state, the cardinal issue is dehydration. People think of these as, oh, diabetes, high blood sugar. Um, what's actually happening is that really high sugar that's persisting, 
So we know that your kidneys can hold on to a blood sugar of up to 180 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Past 180, the, the nephron can no longer continue to extract back that glucose to put it back in your blood. It starts spilling out in the, in the urine. And uh, that's your glycosuria. So that's the, what we call the renal threshold of glucose is around 180. So if you acutely get very high, you're going to pee out lots of fluid because along with all that sugar is going fluid. Fluid is going to follow all that sugar um, as, your, as your blood sugar stays so high and it goes through the kidney as such a high sugar. Um, that can lead up to severe dehydration. And patients with DKA and HHS can have dehydration on the orders of six to eight liters down. Um, That is the cardinal issue. Whenever I talk to people about treatments, they're always thinking about, oh, we'll start the insulin, the glucose is high. Oh, start the insulin, the glucose is high. Well, actually, the first thing that we should do is start with fluids, 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 fluids. So what about the the patient with starvation ketosis? How do you differentiate that from, say, early to mild DKA? Yeah, a good question. So DKA and HHS can get confused with other um, syndromes that can cause acidosis, acidemia, ketosis. Um, and, uh, you know, the basic uh, difference is going to be that with diabetes and hyperglycemic states, the glucose is very high. Now, in starvation, what do we think the glucose would be? You would hope low. Yeah, it's usually normal or low. And that's actually the main differentiating factor because the pH may be down in that in the, um, starvation ketosis. Um, the osmolality could potentially be increased. Uric acid will be increased. All those sort of things that we look at with DK are going to be similar between the two. But the glucose will be normal or low in that state. There are other things that we get confused about um, being similar to DK, things like um, salicylic intoxication or um, uh, methylene glycol or ethylene glycol, rather, the uh, antifreeze. Um, Those sort of intoxications can create acidemia in your patient. And then so people think, oh, no, is this, uh, I've got an anion gap, I've got acidemia, is this DK? You know, maybe it's a diabetic patient or something. Look at the glucose. You know, if the glucose isn't elevated, then I'm not thinking about DK. I feel like sometimes you do get patients who have they're, they're type two di- they have type 2 diabetes, they have an elevated glucose, you get a call from an urgent care or uh, th- someone checks a finger stick in a nursing home, they call you, oh, the sugar's 450, patient's asymptomatic. How do you like to handle those patients? Yeah, so, you know, for, for we, and going back to the, the start of what we talked about, you got to think about, is this a type 1 or type 2 diabetic? Um, type 1 diabetic with a blood glucose um, that is that high, um, that's over 250, I'm getting con- you know, quite concerned there. Um, depends upon how long that's been occurring. And you'd said asymptomatic, so maybe a little less concerned. Um, but type 1 diabetics don't handle those really higher sugars as well as a type 2 could. Because again, the type 2s have some insulin on board. It's going to keep them out of trouble. Um, for a type 2 diabetic, if I'm called, um, you, know, you mentioned 400, it's asymptomatic. That could be treated with, you know, looking at, okay, did they miss a dose of their medication? Is the patient sick is a question. I mean, you said it isn't matter, but really digging into, hey, you know, you'd have, been, have you been urinating more? And that could be from the higher glucose that's causing more glycosuria. But also I'd question, well, maybe they have a urinary tract infection that they're not paying attention to or reporting. So I'm concerned about, it, are they developing an infection? If they're on their routine meds, 
are they developing something new that I should be concerned about? So I think it's reasonable that we think about, you know, doing evaluation, you know, maybe not, you know, emergently, but just setting up a doctor appointment within one to two weeks to assess that patient you know, making sure they're on the routine meds, making sure they're not missing medications. Um, but yeah, if they're asymptomatic, I don't think we have to get going crazy, particularly if they're eating and drinking, which will allow them to stay hydrated. So Dr. Colburn, I actually, I, I, there's two scenarios I come across all the time in, in my own personal outpatient clinic. And sort of one of the main causes of, of severe hyperglycemia, in fact, I see far and away more than anything else is just from not adherence with their insulin. So you have this clinic patient who comes in and their blood sugar is, say, 450, and they feel fine. They just didn't take their insulin last night. And they didn't take their, their premial dose um, today. Uh, is there any utility in just sort of treating the number while they're in clinic? And then, and then I guess part B of that question is, say you do the urinalysis and they have sort of those weak ketones on it. Then what, what do you do with that exactly? Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like you've got a really good inciting factor by your history. If they're not looking sick otherwise, I do think you could kind of just readdress you know, making sure they drink extra fluids, um, water being a good fluid. You know, I see people, oh, let me down a bunch of Gatorade, a lot of sugar in there. Um, they're, they're sold on, oh, there's all these electrolytes in there. Oh, there's a lot of sugar in there too. So, you know, drinking plenty of, plenty of water um, or, or um, uh, crystal light if they want that. Um, and then getting back on their insulin regimen um, and doing a follow-up, maybe having the nurse call in a day or two. And the other thing that's important is increasing the frequency of finger sticks. If the patient can check their sugar, you know, if you're in the office and you see, okay, you're 400, okay, now I got some insulin, we gave you a dose, you're down to, to 300, okay, you're going the right direction, okay, drink lots of fluid, go home, check your finger stick four to six times a day, we want to see that number coming down nicely, um, and our nurse will call you in a day or two. I think that's very appropriate for, for a patient like that. The mild ketones there, you know, you may see that in a type 2 diabetic um, that could potentially be unrelated to that diabetes process. Um, it, potentially they're dry. Maybe they didn't, um, uh, they ate some foods that were a little bit different. Um, you can get it from diuretics and other things. So just be very careful about the fluid status. So I would really hydrate that patient either orally if they can um, or otherwise. So what about on the flip side, if you have a type one diabetic and let's say that they've got an acute viral illness, would you recommend that they adjust their insulin to prevent developing mild DKA? Yeah, so illness is interesting. It can, it will usually cause the patient to have to give more insulin. That is typical. But um, the interesting thing would be, you know, if you've gotten the flu, you, you know, lay in bed and don't eat any food. You feel like junk. Um, so, you know, maybe they're not eating, so then they don't need as much insulin. So it's very hard to know, are you going to need more? Am I going to need less? Um, so in essence, they really have to check the sugars frequently so they can see, am I trending up? Am I trending, trending down, getting risky for hypoglycemia? But some, a couple of things I'll give you, um, maybe six points, um, if you will. Number one, early contact with the healthcare team. Let them know your reach out numbers. Let them know your nurse's number. Where can they reach a, a doctor or a nurse or healthcare team? Number two, we need to emphasize the importance of insulin during an illness. A lot of patients will say, well, I'm not really eating much. I'll just stop my insulin. No, no, you can't stop your insulin altogether. If they decide that they're starting to run low, they may reduce their insulin doses. And certainly, long-acting insulin is always given every day. Mealtime insulin is given with a meal. If you're not eating a meal, of course, you don't take the mealtime insulin. But a lot of times, patients will say, well, I'm not really eating much. I'm worried about running low. I'll just stop all my insulin. That's a good way to go into DKA. So emphasize, number two there was emphasizing the importance of continuing insulin. Number three, review blood glucose levels continuously. So throughout the day to see where you're going. 
Number four, having medications available to suppress fever can really help with that uh, process, um, keeping the inflammation down. Number five, initiating um, early liquid uh, intake. So, uh, you know, taking water is a very good uh, thing to do. Um, if they're really nauseated and really can't eat, I'm okay with the Gatorade. They could have some carbs and salt in there, but only if they really can't eat other foods. And number six, educating other family members about signs of, you know, stupor, um, change in mental status, things to be concerned about in the family member. So you've got the family team on board. But use those six tips there, um, and you'll have a patient ready for what we call sick day rules. Those are my sick day rules, and I go over those with patients uh, all the time. They need constant reiteration in the clinic um, because uh, I forget them, patients forget them. It's hard to keep doing those things. That was very helpful. Thank you. And with, with the basal insulin, so they're they're not eating what do you tell them with the basal insulin? Let's say first, if they're on subcutaneous insulin, and then second, if they're on an insulin pump. So for patients that are doing subcutaneous, so doing pen-delivered uh, insulin, um, we should drop that basal insulin. Um, if they're Certainly, if they're not eating, you should drop that by maybe about 20%. So they're going to give themselves 80% of their usual dose. Um, so for example, a person injecting 10 units of glargine nightly would go down to eight units. And that gives them a little bit more room to prevent lows if they're not eating much. Uh, conversely, if they're eating okay and they have an infection, they might need to go up by uh, 20%. So going from that 10 to maybe 12 units um, for long-acting insulin. Um, for the mealtime, I would recommend you know continuing their usual mealtime dose. And then all uh, diabetes patients should be given a supplemental scale. Um, and I'll post some to you that you can put in the podcast, uh, uh, some examples of supplemental scales that people can use. In essence, what they are is they're showing for increments of high blood sugars. So like, for example, between 150 to 200, that patient will give a certain dose of insulin. And it's usually based upon, you know, uh, their insulin sensitivity. Really heavy patients, very non-sensitive to their insulin, may need more insulin for each uh, part of that scale. To go to the pump question, um, patients should be aware of how to use their pump and may dial up their basal rates um, by 20% if they felt like they were eating okay and had an infection and things like that. Um, patients that are not eating okay, okay uh, conversely, again, can decrease that. Um, if they don't know how to use the pump, that's kind of an issue, um, but all pumps on the back have a 1-800 number. They can get in touch with the pump company, and they're very responsive to these patients because they're, that's part of the deal of getting the pump. Um, and also, again, number one on my list of six things to do was early contact with the healthcare providers. So um, if they're not aware of how to use that pump, making that adjustment. I, I want to get into a little bit. We, we've talked about like the, the symptoms and the pathophysiology of how you get DKA, but I, I do want to talk about the specific tests and how to interpret them. So which tests, if you're seeing this patient in clinic or in the ER urgent care, what tests are you going to look at to, to figure out, is this DKA or is this just someone with starvation ketosis? Just to kind of, and, and then we can talk about a little bit about the ketones, because I think their serum and urine ketones, I wanted to just talk about how to interpret those. Yeah, so uh, the DKA, the biochemical triad, is hyperglycemia, ketonemia, and acidemia. And so if, if you're going to make this diagnosis and you're concerned enough that we're going to say, well, this person's looking kind of uh, really un more dehydrated than, um, you know, I think they could replete with flu oral fluids. The patient um, is maybe confusional a bit or 
Um, on physical exam, they have Kussmaul breathing, which is that rapid, deep breathing that they're trying to, to pull CO2 out of their body, which is a way to offload acid. Um, Kussmaul breathing is very deep, rapid breathing. Um, if you're starting to see these sort of findings, um, d uh, dry mucous membranes, skin turgor, things like that, dehydrated patient, uh, then we're going to say, okay, well, I need to pull a trigger. I need to order some labs. Um, a blood sugar is a great number one to start. You could do a finger stick right there in the office, get some quick information there about, okay, how high is this person's sugar? Um, it's also it, to go back to that tri triad ketonemia. Um, so it's talking about ketones in the blood. Sometimes we try and get at that by doing urine ketones um, because you can get that faster. You can get that right on a dipstick right away. You don't have to send it to the lab and wait a while. Some downsides, as you alluded to, um, urine ketones may miss beta-hydroxybutyrate. And, and that is a ketone that is the earliest to be seen in DKA. And it also um, may clear out uh, much later. So patients may have uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate hanging around. And if you go by urine ketones and say, oh, it's, now it's negative, they still might be in trouble because that beta-hydroxybutyrate needs to clear out. And it, you're not measuring it with the urine dipstick. So ideally, um, a blood beta-hydroxybutyrate would be a good thing to do, but um, in lieu of that, you could get the urine dipstick to look for ketones. And then uh, acidemia, as I mentioned. So, you know, if you want to be a purist, an arterial blood stick uh, by the radial artery is a great way to get a blood acid level. Um, that hurts, and that's hard to do in an outpatient clinic. You could um, try and do that by venous blood gas and interpret that the best you can. Um, if this is a patient going in the ICU, um, yes, I'm going to want that arterial. Um, but there's some different levels, and um, I'll have you post a paper for me. Um, probably the, the best papers for hyperglycemic crisis um, come from uh, Dr. Kidbachi and Dr. Umpirez. Um, they're posted in, in uh, diabetes care. And on their, their table, I won't read it out all for you, but um, for in essence, DKA, you're going to see a glucose, a plasma glucose over 250 you're going to see um, acid in the blood, um, so that pH is going to start to look low, um, below 7.3, and you're going to see positive ketones in the urine and serum. For HHS, the differentiating point there is usually these are type 2 diabetics again. They're usually much higher glucose, like 600 or higher is the uh, agreed upon usual glucose. Um, the pH um, tends to be okay uh, because, again, they're not in ketoacidosis. They're not making ketoacids. They have a little bit of insulin around. It keeps their shifter still in glucose use mode. So the pH will be greater than 7.3. They're doing okay. They're not acidotic. And their ketones are usually small. As you all alluded to previously, they might have a little bit of ketones in there, but it's going to be pretty trace. So that, that would be the start. Those are the most basic labs that you need to get. When you're getting a call from the ER, or uh, if, if you're in clinic sending someone in and you want to make a recommendation, is there a time, how do you decide if you're going to put someone on subcutaneous insulin, if that's ever okay, or, or IV insulin? If, if you think someone has mild DKA, is it okay to use subcutaneous or does, should everybody be given uh, IV insulin? So this is not hotly debated. Um, there's a couple of papers out there looking at doing IV insulin, which of course requires hospital admission versus doing uh, IM or subcutaneous insulin. They're usually these uh, papers are debating whether or not a patient being seen in an outpatient clinic needs to be admitted to the hospital for IV uh, insulins or could be in like the treatment room with your nurse monitored over about four to six hours getting subcutaneous or IM insulin. 
if they're in the ER and the ER is calling you for admission, it's kind of hard to negate that push. Um, I'm going to almost uniformly say you're really looking at going to bring them in and put them on IV insulin. It's kind of hard to, uh, unless the ER is okay doing that management down there. Um, there wouldn't be a good reason if you're going to bring them in the hospital. I don't think there's a great reason um, to do IM or sub-Q unless you're saying, well, resource management, I don't want them to be in the unit. I want to put them on the floor. But again, if you're bringing them in the hospital and you have step-down or unit beds that can do insulin drips, that's probably the better way to go. Um, it's easier to to turn on and turn off that insulin. So insulin that is put in by IV, um, it has immediate action. And when you turn it off, when you turn an insulin drip off, um, it, its effect is done within a few minutes. And so if you're getting the patient to a danger area of hypoglycemia, you can say, oh, turn the drip off or lower the drip, and you're going to stop that from proceeding. Sub-Q or IM insulin, once you've injected that insulin, that insulin is active if it's regular insulin for up to four hours, can't take it back. So if you overshoot or create an issue um, or you want to redose them because they're like, well, that didn't really do much, I want to redose them, and you start to get insulin stacking and confusion. I would say if you're familiar with doing this and you have a um, patient that you want to kind of get them jump-started, but they don't look ill, they don't look dehydrated, they're in your outpatient clinic, you could do some sub-Q and follow an algorithm. Uh, check their blood sugar every one to two hours with your nurse there and turn them loose to home within four to six hours. But that's labor-intensive. I don't see it done very often. When when starting insulin in the emergency department, uh, um, can you talk about some of what what should be given before the IV the IV insulin is given? Can you talk about some of the specifics there? How you would do it in a perfect world? Yeah. So um, you know we had mentioned um, a little bit about labs. I'll kind of jump back to that here. So if I'm getting the call from the ER, they're saying, "Yep, got to admit this patient." Um, you know, I'm focusing my history and physical on airway patency, mental status, um, cardiovascular renal status. You know, they look like they're in heart failure. Um, do they look infected or septic? Um, and their state of hydration. All of those things are going to say, yep, looks really clinically ill. I'm putting them in the unit or no, not having an MI. Um, don't think they're septic, mild dehydration, maybe on the ward. Um, so that's kind of the, the thinking with the physical status when I go to the ER. The labs I'm going to want, uh, other than the ones I already mentioned to you that the biochemical triad, I would get a renal panel. Um, patients with DKA, uh, you're going to see a lot of electrolyte changes, and you need to track those frequently. You need to get a start on that. For patients with HHS, the average creatinine is usually around three. So these patients are usually in acute renal failure when they're in HHS. So renal panel, um, of course, with all the electrolytes that you see there. LFTs are reasonable. Um, you, you can look for um, hepatitis or something else that could be easily uh, found there. Maybe they have cholecystitis or something that's triggered their DKA. Uh, CBC, of course, all of these patients are going to have a leukocytosis. And part of that is probably from the stress reaction. So you have to kind of take it with, and their dehydration. So you have to take it with a bit of grain of salt. If you see a really concentrated hematocrit and they have, you know, some mild leukocytosis, a mildly high white count, maybe you want to hydrate them and kind of look at that if you're not thinking of them as being septic or, or infected. If you clinically think they're septic or infected, you should start antibiotics right away. Um, but certainly the, the CBC can be confusing in that way. Serum osmolality to differentiate between HHS and DKA is important. The osmolality is certainly going to be high in HHS, usually greater than 320 because it's a hyperosmolar state. Really high glucose in the serum 
very high osmolarity. And then serum ketones I mentioned, arterial or venous blood gas. Um, your analysis is great. You can look for uh, an infection. Check an A1C. You know, you could see how long have they had diabetes. Is this a new diagnosis? Um, that if the A1C is 7, but they're coming in DKA, maybe, boom, they just got type 1 diabetes and threw into it. Um, check an HCG in females, please. We don't want to miss a pregnancy as an inciting factor. And uh, possibly a toxicology screen, depending upon, you know, the history that you get from the patient um, of things that they could have been taken. If you suspect infection, urine cultures, blood cultures, um, start some antibiotics, please. Uh, chest x-ray could be uh, reasonable for pulmonary infection. And then in EKG, you, you wanna, don't want to miss the silent MI and that type 2 diabetic coming in sick. Um, but that's some initial stuff I want to get. Um, anything you want to digest there before I jump on to the treatment? No, I think we could move on to treatment. And I wanted to mention just the 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 things that I commonly see people kind of jumping the gun on. I think uh, how much fluid do you give and, and what about how do you handle potassium before starting the IV insulin? Yeah, so um, we know that DKA, uh, because the patient is urinating out so much, so much fluid, because the glucose that's being urinated out is dragging water with it. So you're also losing a lot of electrolytes, a lot of um, minerals and electrolytes in that process as well. Um, potassium probably being the most cardinal, important one to be worried about there. Um, and, and the treatment algorithms focus on repleting that. Um, also, the acidemia is driving potassium from the intracellular to their plasma store out into the bloodstream, and then you're peeing it out, washing it out. Um, so they're just losing potassium like crazy. Um, so I mentioned to you, number one in treatment is fluids, fluids, fluids. These patients are six to eight liters down. Um, there's debate about what the secondary fluid but is, but there's no debate upon what you start with, and that is normal saline, the 0.9% sodium chloride, and it's given at one liter push. You want to get that in quickly. There's some good algorithms. Again, I know it's confusing to hear it in word form, um, but um, if you follow the Kibachi algorithm, you'll do fine there. Um, if that serum potassium is low, less than 3.3, you want to not give insulin, and you want to start with replacing—excuse uh, me—replacing that uh, blood potassium with 40 mil equivalents per hour. Um, Jeff, I wanted to—I I just wanted to quick, quickly break in about that. So, something that happened to me in residency, managing a case of DKA on the floors. Patient was admitted from the ER, and the potassium was initially three. They started the insulin drip before fully rep repleting the potassium. And and me as the junior resident trying to manage this, I was chasing the potassium all night when probably the answer was, even though the patient's in DKA, I should have continued to give them fluids uh, and, and give them potassium back, stop the insulin drip until the potassium came up. But that is something where if, if the potassium is not repleted ahead of time, you're going to be chasing it all day yes. or all night. And uh, you could definitely hurt the patient. Yep. And it's actually... you. Don't give the insulin until you know what their potassium is. Please, please, please. People get so focused on giving the insulin, and you really want to know what is their potassium before you pull that trigger. If the potassium is less than 3.3, you got to start replacing that potassium first. Yeah, I was. we were talking about our pet peeves before we actually before we had you on the line with us. And in my where I work, we tend to manage DK primarily on the floors unless you're extraordinarily sick. And the mistake that I see is just exactly as you mentioned, that fixation on the blood glucose. They, they seem to forget they're actually chasing an insulin deficiency and an acidosis, not 
not the glucose. So they see the number go down. They are reassured. They stop the drip prematurely and the gap opens right back up rather than um, sort of staying the course and making sure things stay closed and actually starting, say, some actual uh, dextrose maintenance fluids. So I, I was real glad to hear you make that point. Stuart, uh, I know you have some more questions uh, kind of off the topic of, of DKA, well, right. off the inpatient management of DKA. Yeah, so just a, a real brief question about the usage of SGLT2 inhibitors and the risk yeah. for your euglycemic DKA. First of all, wh- wh- where does this come from and how severe or serious is this issue? So uh, uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, kind of the new kid to the block, um, kind of nice because they're pills for treating diabetes, uh, which patients like that once a day. Um, they The SGLT2 receptor is something we all carry in the proximal convoluted tubule of our nephrons and the kidneys. So we, we have this receptor, and this receptor is what allows us to take back about 98% of the sugar out of the what's eventually going to become the urine. So we're pulling sugar back, and you and I do this all day. For people with diabetes, they are their blood glucose is so high, they spill so much sugar into their urine, they, they can't pull it all back. Not possible. Um, so what's interesting is some people said, well, why don't we just block that, uh, re- that receptor so they can't take up any glucose? Let's just block that so they really can't get much at all. And so um, instead of at 180, at lower levels, they're going to be urinating out glucose. Um, and above 180 for certain, it's going to really push glucose to come out in the urine. Um, so this drug, in essence, works by getting blood sugar to be peed out. Some pros of that, you can lose weight because you're getting sugar out of the body. So that's uh, one thing that people like to kind of say is an advantage. Downsides are going to be dehydration. We've been talking about dehydration with DKA all day today. And uh, it's from the glycosuria, all the glucose in the urine dragging all the water out with it. When you use a drug like this, it's going to mimic some of that effect. It's going to have all this water going out, has a diuretic effect. In fact, I recommend when patients start these, we stop their thiazide diuretic um, and assess their fluid status. Um, not have both an SGLT2 inhibitor and a thiazide on board at the same time. Please don't. Um, the, going back to your question a little bit more now that I've given some background, um, we have seen people with normal blood glucose in DKA. And it's because DKA is, uh, I mentioned to you that dehydration, the hyperglycemia, um, acidosis and the ketosis that occurs. If I push tons of glucose out, I dehydrate the patient, we might push them into acidosis ketosis, but since we're eliminating sugar, we might keep them normal glucose. The mechanisms are not well understood, but myself, I have not frequently seen this. I've seen one patient that had normal glucose levels, but had acidemia. He was nauseated. He had all the DKA kind of symptoms of Kussmaul breathing and things, got very sick. Um, and the only thing I could attribute to was the SGLT2 inhibitor. I think in well-selected patients, they're safe and very good drugs. Um, the, the patient that you want to be cautious with, though, is an elderly, frail patient who's going to be easy to get dehydrated. The tea and toast lady, she's going to take SGLT2 inhibitor, she's going to get dehydrated, and she's going to go into DKA on you. So it's a very good question you ask. I think as these drugs stand in the market a little bit longer, the empagliflozan, uh, canagliflozan, um, those types of drugs, we're going to see um, more of this issue um, come about. Yeah, and that tea and toaster probably doesn't need to lose weight anyways. 
Right. No, and and Great maybe point. you know we're just past the new year here. Maybe your uh, younger patients that are uh, you know partying it up for New Year's will get a little dehydrated from uh, some overzealous partying and uh, yep, get dehydrated from the SGLT2 inhibitor. Got to be careful. Best day is January second, apparently. <laughs> I think we're out of time. I we've definitely gone through a lot about severe hyperglycemia and DKA. I think this has been really helpful. Um, I want to just open it up to Paul and Stuart. Do you guys have any follow up questions or? Anything else before we let Dr. Colburn go? Hmm. No, not really. No, I was just happy to hear how to pronounce the SGLT2 inhibitors. So that was ah. great. <laughs> All, we're always impressed when people can pronounce things. <laughs> Jeff, the last thing I'd like to ask you, anything that you'd like to plug, any requests or asks of our listeners? Yeah, I think a, po- a point that was maybe not said or, or bulleted um, that probably should be made would be, uh, a good takeaway would be um, if you're doing DKA management, pull up an algorithm and follow it. 25% of admitted patients to the hospital have diabetes. So if you don't know how to treat hyperglycemic crisis, you better, because if you work in the hospital setting, you're going to see it. Um, so go through the algorithms. We didn't touch upon insulin um, and how to do that. I think it's best looked at in the algorithm. I think we kind of tried to point out the trouble spots and not uh, talk about the insulin until later. Um, And then bicarb is another consideration. But again, thank you for uh, listening and for uh, caring for diabetes patients. All right. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate your time. And tell your wife, uh, thank you for letting you take some time away from the family to talk with us. Yes. My uh, domestic commander uh, let me loose a little (laughs) while. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Dr. Coburn. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on our page on Facebook or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Otto. Hey, and uh, I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Hey, and I just downloaded that app. That's pretty cool. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Paul Williams. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night.